This is Chaz Woodson, and you're listening to the Going Offsides Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 33 of the Going Offsides Podcast. Today, we are going to feature Eli Gobrecht, defender from the PLL Atlas Lacrosse Club and the NLL San Diego Seals. Before we get to that, let's hear from today's sponsor. All right. Well, Eli, thanks so much for joining the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Eli Gobrecht from Archers LC, formerly of the Outlaws, also of the San Diego Seals. Eli, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on, man. No problem. So let's start off with this. I know that this episode won't won't air until early January, but what are your initial thoughts on the merger? Um, I think, you know, at first it's it's a little bit bittersweet. Um, there's, you know, you go from six teams in the MLL to only bring in one over. So the quick math there, you know, there's probably 100 or so guys that are not going to be playing next year. And, you know, the, the outlaws were a, a great organization to play for from top to bottom playing at mile high is still like a once in a lifetime experience for me, especially those fourth, fourth of July games. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's 30,000 people in the stands. It's pretty epic. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's tough um, from that side of it, but for the sport in general, I think it's going to be a, a very, very good thing moving mm-hmm. forward. Um, it's, it's hard to see pro lacrosse really taking off with two separate outdoor leagues. So I think that this was inevitable and I'm glad that we're on the same page now and, and there'll be eight teams in the PLL and, you know, those roster spots are going to be harder than ever to get. Um, so the competition is going to be really good. And I think uh, it's going to be good moving forward for everyone. You know, you, you obviously have a unique perspective. You were in the PLL for year two, switching over. So what kind of initial, I guess, I don't know if there's advice you could give or what would you say to somebody that is now coming over from the MLL? What, what's kind of different? What, how, how are things kind of run differently? Are there different expectations, different priorities? I know obviously social media and marketing yourself is a big priority of the PLL. So for those guys coming over now that have no idea maybe what it's like to be in the PLL, what kind of, you know, what kind of stuff could you offer them? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting year to join the league um, in a bubble scenario. So I I can't speak too much to the travel portion. I think that that's one of the biggest differences is when you're playing in the MLL, whether you live in your home city or not, you kind of have half of those home games and half on the road and and you get a feel for playing at home. Um, So the travel part's definitely something that'll be new to me. And I think most guys will adjust pretty well because we're used to traveling, you know, every weekend to a different city. Um, But the competition is, you know, it's, it's really the same as it was when there was one league before, I feel like Um, it'll be, it'll be better now just because it's condensed. I think there was, I want to say like around 10 or 12 teams when I was playing in the MLL, my, my rookie year. Mm -hmm. Um, So the town will be more condensed than that. But yeah, I mean, the social media side is is something that's definitely important to the league. But from a player perspective, like if you want to focus on that, that's that's totally fine and they'll support you. But there's also a lot of guys in the league who don't really care about social media mm-hmm. and are great players and um, kind of indifferent. So 
you know, that's, it's definitely a bigger piece of the PLL versus the MLL. Um, but I don't think it's, it's something that can hold you back if you're not a big social media guy. For sure. And so you obviously also play in the NLL and that's kind of like this looming question. And maybe by the time this episode premieres, they haven't figured it out, but do you think it's going to be easier now with having only one field league to organize the schedules so that, you know, I, I spoke with, um, a couple pros about this, there might be some overlap, maybe in the playoffs, just like there used to be every time that, you know, in the MLL, there was always that little bit of overlap where a couple guys were still in the playoffs in the NLL. Do you think it's more likely that they can get that figured out now? Um, as opposed to having two outdoor leagues trying to juggle these schedules? Yeah, the, the NLL, I think was, you know, kind of a neutral party, like the, they've been around longer than either the MLL or the PLL. So, you know, they're, they're pretty much a well-oiled machine at this point. Um, and I think now that there's a united front on the outdoor pro side, that it's going to be easier for them to work together and not have to juggle like three different schedules. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's still going to be challenging because with the NLL, hopefully starting up in April um, and the PLL starting sometime after Memorial Day, I think overlap is probably somewhat inevitable, but mm -hmm. I know that the leagues are working together and, you know, they're meeting either bi-weekly or, or twice a month now to try to figure out how to make this schedule work and how to give guys opportunity to play in both leagues. Cause I think there's probably about 60 guys that play professionally indoor right. and outdoor. And so one thing that I thought was great that the indoor league or the indoor players did recently is they formed a, you know, the players association. And that's been, I think that's much needed just for the growth of the game too, and the growth of the players and their contracts that was missing on the field side. And obviously with two field leagues that also muddied that those waters up made it a little bit harder. Do you think that there's a possibility that we see a players association for the field players as well moving forward? Yeah. I mean, on the NLL side, it's, when you look at the way the league is run, it's, it's more traditional city based. Mm -hmm. um, we have a collective bargaining agreement that is carried out for several years. Um, I, th I think NHL or NBA would be the best comparison for the way right. that that works um, just in terms of contracts and the MLL and the PLL to now haven't really had a union. And mm -hmm. I think in order for the sport to really grow on that side, there's got to be some sort of collective bargaining agreement um, just to protect the players' interests. Like, I, mm -hmm. I think that they do have our best interests in mind, but as the brand grows and the league grows, it's going to become more important for us players to be able to take care of ourselves and make sure that when these deals are going down, that we're getting a piece of that as well. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, pretty much every PLL player was on a one or two year contract, correct? Yeah, the, the initial um, PLL contracts were all two years. Okay. So um, guys either extended those another year or some guys have signed two or three year extensions. Okay, very cool. And so that'll be, very an that'll be a very interesting dynamic now having all these MLL players which have no contracts at all going into the expansion draft. I'm sure that there are some guys in the league, like we, we just saw Lacasio yesterday retire, um, that decide, you know, like this thing is moving forward at a pretty fast pace. And if you're not all in, or if you don't have the resources or the time to, to be all in, maybe your heart is, but you just don't have the time. Maybe it's time to step back and, and make some room. I'm sure there's some older players that are on the verge of retiring 
that might say, you know what, this is a great time to get out of the way and, and let the league grow a little bit from a, from a talent standpoint. So I think, I mean, it'll be an interesting season this summer for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to awesome. be, uh, hopefully so, we'll be able to play in both leagues. So, yeah, I mean, we all want to see it, right? We, yeah. we, that's what the fans want as well. I know that not every PLL fan is a, an NLL fan, but I think the overlap is growing as you see more players play in both, especially some of the huge names that are kind of the faces of one league. I mean, when, when Rambo goes and plays in the NLL, people are interested in, in how that go. Same thing with Blaze, especially because he switches positions. So I think it's super interesting. Um, so obviously part of the reason we're, we're talking today is you didn't have the traditional route to play pro lacrosse um, or in any sport, right? You, you played D3, you grew up in Ithaca, New York. You went to Ithaca. Explain to me kind of, and to everybody, why Ithaca? Um, yeah, growing up in Ithaca, I mean, really hockey and lacrosse were, were my two main sports. Um, I was lucky enough to be coached by uh, Ryan Lazda was my first coach. He played at Cornell. I think he won two national championships there um, in the seventies and his son Riley was my classmate. And then his younger brother, Eli also played with me. So, you know, starting in like second grade, that was the kind of the experience that we had. Um, and we, we learned kind of the roots of the game from uh, it's indigenous history with the Haudenosaunee and it's always kind of had a special place in my heart but honestly hockey was my main sport and lacrosse was just kind of something I did in the off season mm -hmm. um, so going through high school I played hockey and lacrosse all four years and I was more interested in playing college hockey at the time so I took a year off after graduating from Ithaca High School to play junior hockey um, for the Rochester Stars in Rochester, New York. So um, I had a, like I had a good experience there, but I just kind of um, didn't have the best um, season. Like I was, I was more of a fringe fourth or fifth line guy, and right. I, I kind of realized that if I wanted to play college hockey, it was going to take another two, probably one or two years at least of junior hockey. And then you're looking at being a, a 21 year old freshman, um, which could be fun in some ways, but um, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, to get to school uh, before that time. Right. So um, lacrosse was, was kind of a, a fallback for me as weird as that is. Like I actually sold my high school helmet and gloves after I graduated. Didn't think I was going to play again, um, but uh, my mom worked at Ithaca College, so mm -hmm. um, she'd been there long enough that I got a really significant break on tuition, and it just kind of made sense. They they had a really good lacrosse program there with with Coach Long, so I was officially I was a walk on um, right in I think 2000 fall 2012 there, and ended up working out really well for me. Yeah. So obviously, like, like you said, you didn't find D3 kind of on purpose, if you will, it kind of fell into your lap. The stars kind of aligned and it just kind of worked out. That being said, four years later, how do you feel about your overall experience? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it was kind of, my dream was to play D1 hockey. Obviously you could imagine from, uh, from my experience there, but um, just having the chance to step on campus and, knowing that regardless of the level, I was going to take it seriously and mm -hmm. give everything I had. Um, 
and I managed to, you know, basically get a starting job right away as a freshman. And if I was able to play at a D1 school, I don't really think I would have ever been a four-year starter, um, Mm -hmm. potentially not ever started. So it was kind of either go to Ithaca or if I wanted to go play like a year or two at um, Onondaga Community College and then potentially try to transfer D1 from there. So mm-hmm. for me, it was it was just a great opportunity um, to kind of own my role and, and become a starter right away and just kind of work my ass off. And so did you, obviously, it sounds like from your experience, did you ever have any experience playing box lacrosse before, you know, recently? Um, yeah, like little bits, really not a ton. Um, we... We used to go up with our youth team and we'd play against the Iroquois um, up on the reservation. We would play in their outdoor box. And then the deal was that they would kind of, they would come and play us in field mm-hmm. um, and they would, you know, they'd kick our butt pretty good in box. And then we would usually beat them in field. And that was, I think Lyle and I were the same class okay. in high school. So he was usually there. And I think, you know, Miles being the older brother was there. We played against them when we were just little munchkins. Um, so, cool. you know, just, that little experience as a kid, like I kind of understood what the game was and you got the bandits and the night Hawks in upstate New York. Right. So I knew what it was, but my first like real experience was in college between my junior and senior year. I played a few games with the Onondaga Red Hawks, senior B, uh-huh. um, and then didn't really play box again until my first NLL training camp with the Vancouver stealth in 2017, I want to say. That's so crazy to me how people kind of fall backwards, you know, fall ass backwards into the NLL sometimes. I mean, you have, like you said, you had some experience. You obviously, you know, being a lacrosse player, you always have a stick in your hand. So all that is, you know, it it all overlaps. But I've just been training myself a little bit in all of like the the X's and O's of of box. And it's so different from field. Like Mm -hmm. I got to imagine there's a huge learning curve, especially even for you having some experience playing some senior B and then going to a training camp in the NLL, there must've been a huge learning curve that first year or two where you're just trying to like absorb everything and, and learn like everything is different, especially, I mean, and you don't have a long stick anymore either. <laughs> so I, it always throws me off all these guys that are, you know, deep holes and then, or they're box stars and then they go have a deep hole in their hands. So, you know, I talked to Latrell Harris a couple, couple weeks ago, same thing. It's weird. Him and Tyson were both long poles like their entire lives. And then in box, they're just great defenders. So that part makes sense. But um, going back to the whole college and, and recruiting thing, I think we both agreed before the show that there is this mentality, especially right now with this generation of, of student athletes that, Obviously, a lot of them want that immediate, uh, that immediate high, like they, they, they want the recognition. They want the allure of D1 whenever possible. And I think we come to the conclusion that D1 is a great place to be, but it's not for everybody. And just because, you know, you have an opportunity, like I've talked to a lot of great people that, that were fringe D1 guys that ended up being killer D3 guys. And it sounds like um, that's not too far off from kind of where you were at. Like you could have probably made a D1 roster, but would you have been cool sitting your first year? We'll never know because you got to start your freshman year like every game. So um, what, what are kind of your thoughts or the advice you could give to people 
when they're going through that college search to kind of break down that D1 or bust mentality. I mean, my personal thought is that people just need to like go on as many visits as possible and, and really understand what fit actually means. It doesn't just mean the lacrosse field. And it, it, I always tell, told kids when I was recruiting, if you couldn't see yourself being at this school without lacrosse, like that's probably not a great fit. Now I understand that that's kind of preachy because there's a lot of people that go to a lot of schools that they wouldn't go to if they couldn't play this, the sport. But to some extent that has to be true, right? If, if you wouldn't be happy there otherwise, why would you be going here in the first place? So I'll, I'll let you kind of just chime in on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good golden rule and it's cliche, but I tell that to all the kids that I coach too. Like if, if you get injured or, you know, you get cut or whatever, which is, you know, unfortunately can happen at mm -hmm. any moment. Um, you don't want to be in a place where you're just, you know, you're kind of in a dark place. You don't want to be at that school anymore. And you realize the only reason you were there was to play lacrosse or whatever sport. Um, but the second part really is that like, I don't think kids realize that if you play college at any level, like you are a great athlete. The percentage of high school varsity athletes that go on to play college is not very high. Um, so whether you're playing JUCO, like D3, D2, D1, even MCLA for lacrosse, like that means you're a great player. Um, mm -hmm. So I think a lot of guys, especially because I'm coaching on the West Coast, they just take it as like a oh, uh, well, if I'm not going to go D1, you know, I probably won't even play in college. So I, mm -hmm. I just think if, if that's your mentality, then you're probably already playing for the wrong reasons. Like my motivation to play was always to, to have fun, honor the game and, and just, you know, be the best that I could for my teammates and coaches. So I think when you have that mentality, you're just already better set up for success. And also, as you go through the recruiting process with that mentality, I think that's more what coaches are looking for. Like they want guys who just want to play. Um, and going off of that too, like a lot of coaches want multi-sport athletes. And I think a lot of lacrosse players now really are only focused on lacrosse. And I think that feeds into that D1 or bus mentality because, you know, they're not doing anything else but you talk to any d1 coach they want guys that play football they want guys that play hockey they play basketball you know any kind of other sport because those are the guys that just want to play and just mm -hmm. want to compete and they're not worried about like oh where am i going to go to school it's like no like i want to get this next ground ball or i want to win this little game right now i think that message could be better portrayed by the college coaches as well because as much as we can say that coaches want multi-sport athletes if the coaches themselves aren't saying that and they're still just recruiting these guys that specialize which again they're going to recruit who they think is best for their program but if they're recruiting a ton of guys that specialize early and only play one sport then that message is kind of falling on deaf ears i mean we had i had a classmate who was recruited to michigan for football he was an all-state wrestler and lloyd carr told him if you he, he thought about not wrestling his senior year and lloyd carr said his says if you don't wrestle you're not coming to like I'm pulling your offer and so that's like speaking that into to existence and making it true because he really wanted that person I mean he's a D lineman wrestling's great so he really wanted that person to keep playing multiple sports and and we've read all about how specialization's not not great for development and it'll you know it'll show later on in life but 
I completely agree with you. And I think that's something that people need to think about. Obviously, the, the major thing, if you're going to college at all, should be academically driven. I, I have to tell people all the time, you need to have some idea of what major you want, because you could be, especially at some of the smaller schools like in Ithaca, they might not have that major. And then what's the point of being there? And so that, that's another side of it. And then, you know, for those people that love lacrosse, but maybe they don't want to be paying, you know, private school money or they don't necessarily want to do it 40 hours a week or 20 hours a week. Maybe the MCLA is a perfect example because you can still play organized, great lacrosse, be passionate, but then you can go get literally any major you want Mm -hmm. at a state school. So there's something for everybody, but I think it takes a lot of, you have to look internally and really ask yourself the hard questions. You know, what do I want out of this? Am I trying to go be a professional lacrosse player? Okay. Maybe I do need to go to a high level D3, high level D1. But if that's not my goal, my goal is to go work on Wall Street. Maybe I focus on academics and I still get to play lacrosse. And, and there's there's something for everybody out there. There's so many lacrosse teams at this point where if you want to play college lacrosse legitimately somewhere in the country, there is a coach that will take you. You just need to find the right fit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So transitioning a little bit, how has it been, you know, you're living out on the West Coast. Uh, presumably somewhere in Southern California. Uh, I'm in Seattle right now. Actually, oh, Seattle. Okay. Kind of back and forth between uh, Seattle and San Diego. Okay. So being an NLL player, you know, a lot of the times people always ask me and I have no clue what to tell them just because I talk to pro players. Sometimes they're like, what's it like? Do, do they travel to, you know, we kind of know the PLL MLL model more than, more than the NLL model. But what, what's it like? Are they full time? Can you kind of just give some uh, like what the what it's kind of like being in the NLL traveling the games? Do you do you fly in two days before the game and practice kind of kind of just break that whole that whole system down for us? Yeah, typical game week for us, um, you know, you're going to have probably 20 to 30 percent of your team, maybe more living in market like okay. Toronto. I think the rock probably have about 90% of guys that live right. there Same with Vancouver. Um, so you get one team practice a week um, by league rules. Cause it basically would be giving a huge advantage to those two teams. Um, right. If you could just practice all week. So they will, they will kind of do a practice on Wednesday night for a Saturday game. And then you have a shoot around day of the game in the morning and then you play at night um for san diego it was was a little different we'd fly in friday friday afternoon friday night for a saturday game um Mm -hmm. you have a practice friday evening um get a team meal and then you're either back home or back in the hotel um up early for a shoot around in the morning um go home get lunch take a nap and then you're out for the game that night and then you usually fly back the next morning. So it's, it's pretty quick Friday to Sunday. Um, and then the, the team stuff outside of that is typically like you'll have a team call on Wednesday normally. Um, and then you're doing your own workouts or doing whatever plan the trainers got you on during the week and, and just doing your own maintenance on any nicks and injuries that you have. Okay. So uh, the coach in me has to ask, the, it sounds like the league set it up where, you know, each coach or general manager can set it up what's best for them. Like Toronto, they could do a Wednesday practice. Obviously, mm-hmm. San Diego, Friday practice is what, what fits with the travel and everything like that. Do you think that there is an advantage for a market like Toronto where the guys have the ability to meet 
in person on their own time, shoot around on their own time and develop like a little bit more of a rapport and a culture? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's nice to be able to get that practice in on a Wednesday. You can go a little bit harder um, and not have to worry about like banging your own guys up the day before the game. But I, I don't think it's a significant advantage. And the other part of that is that guys are, are training hard on their own. Um, and a lot of guys in the NLL are working more like blue collar jobs, whether they're doing firefighting or plumbing or electrician or something like that. So like guys are, are, are staying busy and working hard during the week for the most part. So I think uh, it could be a slight advantage, but I don't, I don't think it makes a massive difference really. Yeah. To your point, I think Westberg was telling me that like half of the roughnecks are firefighters. So I I think that's something that a lot of people don't know. I, I think what's interesting too, is a lot of the casual fans don't understand that most professional players have just an ordinary job. Mm-hmm. And, and that's hard to wrap your mind around because especially like the NLLs has been there forever. It is such a polished product compared to the, the field leagues just because of time. And it is run very much like the NHL or the NBA. And you don't consider those people like, what do they do during the day? You know, we've always heard about the guys on wall street because you know, the Ivy league produces so many guys out in New York, but you know, the firefighters, I know that there's quite a few police officers, teachers, um, you know, I know Latrell played against his teacher his senior year of high school. Like that's when he played for the Nighthawks and the Rock. So that's absolutely wild. Um, that being said, we kind of heard from Wes about this. Is it possible yet for a player to play in both professional leagues and not have a day job yet? Yeah, I'd say in a way, yes. Um, it's typically supplemented by some sort of coaching or something lacrosse related so like when we say and i say this too like wes is and i am full-time lacrosse players like that Mm -hmm. means we're playing in the nll we're playing in the pll and then for my example i i coach a club program in seattle and i'm the travel team director and then Mm -hmm. also coach a high school team do some private training and clinics so all that wrapped together like you know it it fits and it works but you still got to be doing something um, outside of it. You're never just going to be playing on the weekends and and just training during the week. And I think sometime soon we could get to that point. Um, the PLL has done a good job of, of increasing player salaries and the NLL has done the same. Um, and I know that the NLL commissioner has the goal to get to, you know, basically a 30 team league down the road and, and make it a true full-time profession. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully I'm not too old when that happens and, uh, and I can see what that looks like, um, from a real full-time perspective, but I don't think it's too far off. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've listened to a quite a few podcasts with Nick Sankiewicz and, and I know, you know, the, all the expansion that's going on, especially during a global pandemic to, for, to be able to pull that off is kind of wild. I always appreciated that the NLL has gone, you know, not after the, the MLL had interesting ownership, whereas the NLL has very specific, like these people typically own other sports teams or they have experience in the sports market. So they, they kind of know how to do a city-based, a franchise, like this isn't new. So, you know, Fort Worth, they own a WNBA team. So they, they know what they're doing when it comes to sports and sports marketing. So I've always appreciated that. So I don't think you're super far off in the NLL. Um, I think the big thing for that 
and just speaking for me, so I live in Michigan. I don't like to watch necessarily a lot of NLL games on Bleacher Report. Mm-hmm. So I think if we could not lock down a big TV deal, because anyone I've ever showed a, a, a pro indoor game to loves it. They fall in love with it. And they're like, what is this? And I'm like, this is what I've been talking about. But I think we're one big TV deal away from from being able to like really blow up and, and double or triple the viewership. So I hope that's in the near future, because um, I think that could be the kind of the tipping point for for the salaries and, and the time commitment. I mean, even if you could do just those two leagues and and that'd be it, that that's still a win, I think, for yeah, for absolutely. everybody. So. Well, Eli, uh, I'll ask you a couple more questions. I think that Garrett would appreciate. So, growing up, what was your uh, what was your go to kind of setup via you know your shaft, your headset up? What was the company that you rolled with when you were younger? Oh man, um, I for think me I, it was always Warrior. Like I just, yeah. just just the way it was. Evolution on a Crypto Pro is pretty much standard. Yeah, I was definitely I was more of a gearhead in hockey growing up but mm-hmm. i remember when i got the gate ice shaft i was yes. i was pretty pumped about that um that thing was sweet back in the day and then i uh i used to use like the i think i used like the proton power or the superpower actually mm-hmm. on a deep hole and it was like so pinched that i couldn't even catch a pass but it was great off the ground <laughs> so that being said now obviously you're a big face for true and what true products are you using right now um, right now I'm using the, the new hazardous shaft, um, the, the heavyweight, I think it's called the pro heavy. It's like 300 grams or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, I really like it. I haven't, yeah, I haven't been able to use it in an actual game yet. I was about to use it, um, in Vancouver before our season got canceled back in March, but, um, I have a history of, of breaking shafts just from cross-checking uh, relentlessly. So uh, I use a little bit heavier one and it, it's pretty sturdy. And for the head, I'm using the new hazardous head too, uh, which is, I think it's probably the strongest head that they've made. It's It's got a really nice face shape and I'm a big fan. And then uh, kind of switching between that and the vector head. The vector is okay. a, little, a little lighter. Um, mm-hmm probably more for an offensive minded player, not somebody that's a, a lumberjack out there like me, but um, they kind of got something do you, for everybody. Do now. you kind of switch it up between your, your indoor and your outdoor seasons in terms of the head? Yeah, uh, a little bit. I think the hazardous I could probably use on a deep hole and in box, like, cause it's, it's really, really strong and mm-hmm. it's not too pinched. Uh, I know they have like a box pinch version of it too, but I've been using uh, the, comp 4 hd for field for a while which i was a big fan of and i have yet to break one except for the one that uh american airlines broke on the plane <laughs> so that's uh that's pretty good for me very good are you a golfer by chance uh i dabble i am okay. not very good okay i thought it was genius when when true borrowed so i have all true shafts on true temper shafts on my golf club so when i saw that they were making a hazardous lacrosse stick i was like that's pretty smart mm-hmm. that's that's good because golf is obviously the bread and butter for the company but i think yeah i think the hazardous line is, is pretty impressive and i know that they you know the helios and all, a couple of those other products that they have coming out are impressive as well all right so last question i'll leave you with what is something that no one really knows about Eli Gobrecht that you wish people would know about you? Hmm. So after, uh, after I graduated college, I actually, I went to England for a whole year. 
um, to get my master's degree at a at an English university. Um, so I actually didn't start playing pro lacrosse until two years after I graduated college. So between that and being a D3 guy, I think that's a pretty atypical story. Um, mm -hmm. And I do have my master's degree, although I'm not necessarily using it. <laughs> Did you do one of those go abroad to England and, and play like be a player coach programs to get your master's? Yeah. So which yep. university were you hooked up with over in England? Uh, I played at Durham University. So I was on the, the first team they would call it. And then I helped coach the second and third teams while I was uh, while I was getting my master's and then got a good opportunity to travel to some countries all over there when I was there. So it was, it was a great experience overall. So is that a program? I, I've known p other people have gone through that program. Um, it seems a little bit rarer more recently i haven't known as many people doing it but is that something that you would recommend people look into uh, yeah i mean for my experience not really knowing what i wanted to do right away after college it was great um because you know they give a really significant athletic scholarship um and they bring in over 200 american or foreign athletes mm -hmm. for their grad school program um and it was just a really cool opportunity to continue playing and get my master's and also um, the way that the schooling system works there, especially with it being grad school, you have a lot more free time than you would in your undergrad. So that mm -hmm. gave us an opportunity to, uh, to travel around Europe a little bit and, and kind of get a sense of that culture. That's fantastic. Well, Eli, I really appreciate everything you've done on the show and, and we're, we look forward to watching hopefully in April, you play for the seals with a couple of our other guests, but um, thank you so much for coming on the show. We look forward to watching you succeed in the future. And if there's anything you ever need, you let us know. All right. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate you having me on. No problem. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, of course.